I'm happy really to be here today uh, to worship and encourage each other, to be able to uh, reconnect with each other we haven't seen in a few days, um, also be able to meet people we've only known over a, over a computer screen or uh, new friends from other places. It's a good time to be together and to worship together, so I'm really happy for this. Um, the passage we just read is sort of a reflection of the, the comments Caleb made and the songs that he, he led us in. And the Apostle Paul, those of us who read his works throughout the New Testament, speaks a lot about the way that we're supposed to live our lives as Jesus followers. He speaks a lot about the future hope that we have. We're marching to Zion, that soon and very soon we're going to see the king. He's going to come back. He's going to return, and we'll be one with him in the truest sense. But that whole story begins with us being changed now. And Paul himself was someone who uh, was always really eager to talk about that change in his own life. This year, we've been trying to focus more on the, the New Testament writings, the epistles, and we're going to be doing that throughout the year. We've been, of course, doing our study on Sundays, doing an overview of the New Testament. Tonight, Kale's going to be leading us in a, in a uh, study of the letters of Timothy and Titus. And as we read this, I think it's helpful to understand the man who God chose to write these things, to help us to know how to follow Jesus. And it's a really poignant thing that Antonio just read for us from 1 Timothy 1. That this man who tells us some hard things, frankly, when you read through the writings of the New Testament, there's some difficult, challenging teachings. And I don't just mean challenging and intellectual, but challenging in terms of the way you live. You know that. There's a lot of passages you've read across. You're like, I didn't like that very much. That one kind of hurt me. Or that one's kind of hard for me to even fathom how I could do that. Whenever we know where it comes from, uh, it helps us, I think, to embrace how significant it is and how life-changing it can be. Do you notice the way that Paul describes himself? I mean, first of all, he used some horrible, horrible language, a violent persecutor, all that kind of stuff. But that one line in particular that he says, uh, gee, it's a trustworthy statement, statement that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And that would have been enough for Paul to say that. That's true. And we know he's a sinner because he wrote himself in Romans chapter three, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That included him. But Paul made a special note to remind us a little bit about his own life when he said he came in the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Or your translation may say foremost. The picture is as if there's a parade of sinners and Paul says, really, honestly, I belong at the front of that parade. And I don't mean in a good way of the parade of people who rebelled against God and attacked God's purposes in their life and in the world, I'm right at the front. Now, we might say, Paul, settle down a little bit. But that's the way he saw his life. And actually, there's a lot of truth to it. And I'd like us to think about the life of Paul. For some of you, you may know his life really well. And this may be just a little reminder. For some of you, this may be a brand new story to think about this man uh, who called himself the chief of sinners and yet was not wallowing in despair from his past but rejoicing in the salvation. He started that line, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. He was good. He was content. He was thankful. He was free because though he was the chief of sinners, he was saved. Go back to Acts chapter nine and uh, let's look at his story. Actually, Acts chapter seven. Acts chapter seven. And uh, let's, let's get the beginning of this man's story. First of all, his name wasn't Paul at first. His name was Saul, uh, who grew up in a city of Tarsus, well, I guess he was born there. He grew up really in Jerusalem by his own account. Grew up under uh, sort of famous teachers of his day, Gamaliel, who's a well-respected man in the Jewish council and was trained as a Pharisee. And uh, for Saul, this, this young man named Saul, he was a part of this religious establishment that hated this blasphemous 
rebellious counterculture movement in Jerusalem, people who were following the blasphemer Jesus of Nazareth. And Saul would have grown up been, been around people who were just so upset and so angry about these people who were following this carpenter from Galilee. And they were proclaiming not only that he had been wrongfully killed, but actually he had been raised from the dead. And as such, had been proven to be the son of God, the Christ, the Messiah that had been promised for centuries. One of these Jesus followers named Stephen had been doing some amazing things. Privately, he had been working, serving widows. His people, these Jesus followers, had selected him to be one of the people who took care of the needy saints, particularly uh, older women who were, or maybe younger women too, who were without their husbands. And he would care for them and provide for them. But Stephen wasn't just somebody who fed widows. He was also somebody who preached the word of God. It was mighty in word and deed. So much so that the Jewish establishment, which Saul of Tarsus, Paul, was a part of, they hated him. And they actually got false witnesses to speak against him to have him arrested. Well, in Acts chapter seven, Stephen gives his defense, which really is actually more of an exposure uh, an expose, I guess we'd say, of how the people who were claiming to be God's people, the Jews, had actually rebelled against God all throughout history. By the end of it, the people who listened became so angry, it said they gnashed their teeth and they rushed at him and they dragged him outside the city to stone him to death. And this is where we get introduced for the first time to Saul. In Acts 7 and in verse 57, we'll pick up. It says they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at Stephen with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. In other words, he was the one keeping the clothes. They were so violent and so vicious in their execution of this Jesus follower, Stephen, that they had to take off some of their clothes to be able to do the job the way they wanted to. Or perhaps they didn't want to get his blood on their clothing. I don't know what it was. But whatever the reason was, Saul was there to care for their clothing. And in the later testimony in Acts chapter 22, Saul would say, it wasn't like I was just there. I fully consented to the execution of this man because Saul saw him as an evil one. Uh, the text goes on. Stephen, in verse 59, cries out to the Lord and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, ravaging the church. What a terrible word. He began ravaging the church, entering house after house, not just waiting for people to come out, but he was hunting people down, entering house after house, dragging off not just men, but dragging off men and women and he would put them into prison. When you get to Acts chapter 9, uh, nothing had changed. Saul was still continuing to viciously persecute the church. It says in verse 1 of Acts chapter 9, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Let's pause right there and, and see if we can uh, get something from Saul's story a little bit as we think about how his story helps us understand our own. Uh, 
I'm gonna go and call him Paul sometimes, Saul sometimes. Sorry if the mix up, but I'm gonna I know I'm gonna my brain's gonna do that. So I'm gonna call him Paul right now. Uh, Paul's story, his salvation, uh, teaches something really profound in the life that he lived before he was saved. Paul was a man who would have seemed like a total and complete lost cause that he never could receive salvation. I mean, this kind of description of his life is shocking, right? To think that somebody like that, and maybe it's not shocking us, and thank God if it's not, but actually try to try to rewind your brain to before you understood the gospel, before you knew Jesus, try to divorce yourself from maybe Western culture that's been acculturated in many ways, modern Western culture at least, that's been acculturated with uh, a lot of gospel teaching and forgiveness and reconciliation that's really permeated a lot of the world, this culture we live in. Try to pretend like you're not in that. And then you say, here's a man who helped kill a man who helped widows. And then he went around hunting down people who all they did was believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They weren't attacking anybody or doing anything destructive. And it wasn't just, you know, maybe the leaders of the group that he attacked. He attacked the common people of this movement. It wasn't even just the common people, but the most powerless people in the movement at that time or in society, women. He'd take women off, which, by the way, meant he was leaving, leaving orphans behind. Children with no mother, no father, whose parents got dragged off to prison. And yet Jesus saved that man. Paul seemed like somebody who could never have received salvation. And yet he did. I want you to flip it around real quick, because for us, we see all that stuff. I mean, in our modern sensibilities, even if you're not a Jesus follower, even if you don't agree with uh, with the, the religious stance these people were taking that Saul was attacking, you would say, that's horrible, man. This is bad. This is just a bad behavior on this man's part. Why would he do that? I don't agree with the people he's attacking, but I sure don't agree with him. Uh, this is just bad behavior. How could you be liberated from that? How could you be forgiven of that? But I'd like you to flip it around totally for a second and try to think about this. Saul at once seems like somebody who could never have received salvation. But from another point of view, he would seem like someone who did not need salvation. Seemed like somebody who did not need salvation. Uh, so go to uh, Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. <clears throat> this is much later in Paul's life, and he's, he's given his story. He's giving his testimony. He's on trial, actually, literally, before uh, an official named King Agrippa. And I want you to listen to the way that Paul describes the life that he lived and the mentality that he had when he did all the things that he did. All right? Here we go. Acts 26, starting in verse 4. He said, so then uh, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made to God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O, God, o King, I'm being accused by the Jews. All right, Paul's just saying, you hear what Paul's saying here in his defense? He says, hey, I grew up with these folks. I've been knowing the scriptures my whole life. I've been fighting for the hope of the gospel, uh, excuse me, the hope of our fathers, as he calls it. Flip over to another passage where he talks about the life that he grew up with in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. 
Philippians 3, again, much later after his salvation, but here Paul is reflecting on the life that he lived before he came to Christ. Now, on the one hand, we say, ooh, you are a violent, aggressor, persecuted church, wicked man, dragging women off to prison, even affirming people's deaths. By the way, we didn't read all that in Acts 26. He goes on to talk about how he was so violent, how he went in rage, he said, against these people. And he did all that he could to destroy the name of Jesus and the people who followed him. But I want you to listen to now this, this little piece about how Paul lived his life. Philippians 3, verse 4. He says, I myself may have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence, I far more. And here's why. Circumcise the eighth day, which for a Jewish person of that time, especially, I suppose, of all times, meant you were from a really religious family, very serious about keeping God's law. I'm of the nation of Israel, which, by the way, the nation of Israel, the chosen people of God. Go back to Abraham. Go back to Isaac and Jacob. Go back to Moses. All that stuff. I was of the chosen nation of Israel. And I'm really careful about understanding my heritage. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, authentic, the real deal. As to the law, as to God's word, a Pharisee, as he said in that passage in Acts 26, the strictest sect of our religion. I was really careful about knowing and keeping God's law. And I was zealous. I mean, a persecutor of the church, but I was zealous. I was passionate. Does a person like that need to be saved? Religious family? Very serious about their faith themselves. They're devout. They're conscientious. They're not messing around. They're doing it all for God. Paul would say in Acts chapter 23 and verse 1, he would say, I stand to you today. My whole life has been lived in good conscience before God. In other words, even when he was dragging women off into prison, even whenever he was killing folks who were, were trying to help widows, he was doing it for God. He thought he was at least. And he certainly was reading his Bible. He knew his scriptures really well. And he was zealous about his obedience to God as best as he uh, could do it. Does a man like that need to be saved? I don't know. A lot of surprise say, no, I don't think so. I think they're wrong, but they're sincere. They're genuine. They're really trying to serve God. It's for God. I mean, he, look, it was not a fun thing for him to go around traveling from place to place, chasing down these people and persecuting the church. That was hard work. He did it because he loved God, right? So how could somebody like that need to be saved? Because he was a sinner. Here's the thing. Some of us, we look at we look at either ourselves or we look at other people. And we see ourselves in one of these two ways. Or we see others in one of these two ways. I'm a lost cause. I've done too much. I've been too bad. There's no way God could save me, change me, love me, accept me. The Apostle Paul says, hey, I'm at the front of that parade. Don't talk to me about who God can't save. He saved me. He can save you too. Someone else may say, I don't know that I really need saving. I'm a pretty good person. I'm religious. I read my Bible. I love Jesus. And Paul would say, are you kidding me, man? You need to be saved. You're still a sinner. I don't care how many good deeds you do. I don't care how religious you are. I don't care how many Bible verses you can quote. If you're not in Jesus Christ, then you're not saved. You're still a sinner and you need saving. Saul's story is one that shows us that People who we would think could never receive salvation or would never need salvation, we both do have salvation if we'll take advantage of it in Jesus Christ. Go back to Acts chapter 9. Let's keep going in the story and see what else we can learn uh, from this chief of sinners who was saved. Acts chapter 9, uh, while Saul was on the road to Damascus to persecute more Christians, to take people to jail, to do whatever he was doing to them, 
this voice appeared to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said to him, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Paul would say in another place that they couldn't really even understand the voice either. They, they heard a sound almost as it were, but couldn't really comprehend what the voice was saying and certainly couldn't see what Saul could see. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Uh, what an amazing turn just like that. I mean, he's so vicious, passionate, going to attack these people, take them to jail, do whatever it takes to get to stamp out this Jesus movement. And that all changes. This man who is dragging people to prison gets led by the hand. This man who thought he could see everything so clearly about how the way the world worked now was blinded, realizing that he had been wrong all along. This man who was uh, going to do it his way now, once Jesus spoke to him, he turned. The story of Saul is a story of repentance in the greatest way. This man who had upheld Torah and the traditions of his fathers now would hold firmly and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. This man who was the greatest opponent and attacker of the people of Jesus now became one who went to all nations to invite people to become followers of Jesus themselves. Total and complete repentance, which, of course, is what's necessary for salvation. You can't be saved unless you repent over and over and over again, starting with Jesus and the apostles. And all the time says, listen, what, what is required is you can't keep going your way of the way of the world. You've got to turn and come back to Jesus in order to be saved. And may we, even those of us who have been saved, never forget that. The repentance is not something you do one time. It's an attitude of your heart and life all the time of turning back and following after Jesus and doing what he says, not what you think. But the thing that drove... Um, Paul's repentance was his faith in the word of Christ. He wasn't just walking along Damascus and saying, you know what? I don't know if this is right after all, guys. I kind of got a funny feeling about this. I think I'm going to change my life. It was the word of Jesus that turned him around. Why are you persecuting me? Stop doing this. And, and Saul would, uh, would recount this in later in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26. He would talk about hearing the voice of Jesus and how that belief in that voice, belief in the word of Christ, is what turned him around. But here's the interesting thing. Jesus didn't tell him everything that he needed to know in order to repent. All he said was, go into the city and wait, and somebody's going to come talk to you. The word of Christ was not something that uh, Saul got entirely from the word of Jesus, the voice of Jesus himself. Look where else he got it from. Keep reading the story. Verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard how this man did much harm to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, 
the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized and he took food and was strengthened. And for several days he remained with the disciples there and the text goes on to talk about him refuting those who didn't believe in Jesus and so on and so forth. All right, so how did, how did Saul's faith uh, grow? His initial faith was through that voice of Jesus. But notice the way he learned more to be able to fully repent was through the word of Christ brought by a disciple. And I love that. That's all we know about Ananias. I wonder if Ananias was, uh, you know, because sometimes we think like, oh, yeah, yeah, the people who are going to go out and preach are like, like Paul. You know, they're people who are kind of like big personalities, loud mouth, that kind of thing. I wonder if among the church in Damascus, if, uh, if Ananias was like just the quietest dude there. I don't know. This is Ben's little imagination. Okay, this is my headcanon on this. But what if? What if he was just the quiet guy? You know, he helped out people whenever, but it didn't say much, didn't do, you know, wasn't wasn't a very well-known, popular, you know, guy or whatever. I don't know. That's on the table, though, because the only distinction given to him is he was a disciple. And the word of a disciple, when it's the word of Christ, is a word that saves. It didn't matter who Ananias was. It wasn't because of his persuasive speech. All he said is, I came with a word from Jesus. And that's what Saul believed in. That's what he, that's what made him repent, is he wanted to do whatever Christ said, whatever Christ wanted. It didn't matter who it came from. It didn't matter if it was from the voice of Jesus himself or just a simple disciple that's basically a nobody who never appears in the rest of the story, by the way. It was the word of Christ. That's what saved him. It wasn't his own intuition or his own feelings. It wasn't some persuasive argument that some person made because they were so eloquent. It was the word of Christ that persuaded. And I might add one other. It wasn't just the voice of Jesus and it wasn't just the word relayed by Ananias, but it was also the word that Saul knew from the scriptures all throughout his writings and through the rest of the book of Acts as he recounts his story. And as he persuades people, he's showing how it was this. It was like once he knew about Jesus really being raised from the dead, the light bulb went off. Oh, man, that's what Isaiah 53 is about. Oh, man, that's Psalm 2. Oh, man, that's what the story of this and that and the whole deal. He got it because he knew the scriptures. Jesus, disciples and the scriptures. It didn't matter what the vehicle was. It was the word of Christ that inspired faith in Saul that made him change. If you're sitting there and you're like either one of those people, you're one of those people that said, I don't deserve salvation. I could never receive. I'm too dirty. I'm too bad. Well, remember, get up at the front of the parade with Saul, but he's already beat you there. He's at the front. He's the foremost. He says, no, you can be. And those who say, I don't know, I'm a pretty good person. I'm pretty religious and I'm nice and I pray and I love Jesus stuff. Saul says, stop it. That doesn't mean you can be. That doesn't mean you're saved. You need to be forgiven of your sins. You need to be saved, which means you need to repent of your sins. You need to turn away from ruling your own life and let Jesus rule your life. So come on up here and be changed by the word of Christ. This is what he said in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, whenever Paul would write about salvation and how people are saved, beginning in verse 13, he says that it's those who call on the name of the Lord who will be saved. Those who call on the name of the Lord that will be saved. Those who pledge their allegiance to Jesus, in other words. Those who said, I'm not calling on other gods. I'm not calling on my own name for salvation. I'm trusting in the Lord for salvation. He said a little earlier, those who confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that he's been raised from the dead, those people are going to be saved. But listen to how he describes how that can happen. Verse 14, he says, how will anyone call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe on him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless there's a preacher or somebody to tell them about it? 
And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Preachers like Ananias, the disciple, who came and told Paul about Jesus. Now it says here, uh, however, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? How does the report come? Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's how Saul changed his life. That's how he became turned from being a sinner to being a saint. Is he called on the name of the Lord in repentance and faith. Now, speaking of calling on the name of the Lord, how does, what does that mean exactly? Does that mean you just say Jesus' name out loud? Like just literally be like, Jesus is Lord. Bam, you're saved. That's one possibility. Some people say it means you pray a prayer to Jesus and you say, hey, Jesus. And that's a possibility too. Uh, except this same man who wrote everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He actually tells us exactly what it means. Go back to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22 is one of these passages where Paul recounts his story uh, and his, his transformation, his salvation, how he went from being the chief of sinners to being a saint. In Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse 12, he recounts what we've already read. He said, a certain Ananias, a man who is devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews, lived there in Damascus. He came to me and standing near me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And that very time I looked up at him. And here Paul gives a little more detail than the abbreviated version of the story in Acts 9. It says, and he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. In other words, you're not going to be a persecutor anymore. You're not going to be that old guy anymore. You're going to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. You're going to go out and do his will in the world. Verse 16. Now, why do you wait? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul, I'm going to say, initially received salvation when he called on the name of the Lord in baptism. Now, this is striking to us because if, if you were to ask someone, hey, when did Paul uh, receive salvation? I think there's a lot of pretty good candidates. I tried to jot them down here so I wouldn't forget. Uh, for instance, whenever he saw the Lord on the road, that seems like a pretty good moment. Say, hey, he was saved right there. Jesus was talking to him. That sounds like a salvation kind of thing to me. And he certainly believed in Jesus because he responded appropriately. So maybe it was right there on the road when he was blinded. That's when he was saved. Uh, that's when he called on the name of the Lord. Uh, how about this? What about when he repented of his sins and didn't go into Damascus to kill the Christians, but he went in obediently, waiting, just like Jesus said, waiting for Ananias to come to him and all that sort of thing. Maybe that's when he was saved. Uh, another candidate is when he prayed and fasted for three days. I mean, what else could you do to be saved other than pray and fast for three days? Or what about whenever he had hands laid on him by Ananias? That's what he said. First, Ananias came, laid hands, received your sight. Boom, the scales fall off. I mean, that sounds like, sounds like you're saved right there. Well, here's the deal. According to Acts 22 and verse 16, Saul wasn't saved when any of those other things happened. In the sense that you might say he was saved. Yeah, he was saved from doing more bad things. He was saved in that he was saved from his ignorance. He was saved in some way. But look at verse 16. What was still on him? until he was baptized. Ananias says, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, 
calling on his name. Saul may have been praying and fasting for three days. Not maybe, he was. Uh, he, he believed in Jesus. He clearly did. He had repented of his sins, but he was still in his sins. They were still on him. They hadn't been washed away until he called on the name of the Lord in baptism because salvation is not about either me being a good person or even me doing more good things. Jesus, I'm so sorry. I want to pray and I'm going to fast. Jesus, I'm not going to do the bad things anymore. I'm going to do the right things. Look, that's all good. We've got to do that. Don't get me wrong. Repentance is necessary in faith in the word of Christ. But understand that you can't liberate yourself from your sins. It is Jesus Christ who came into this world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That's what Paul said. And here as he recounts his story, he says, the moment when I was transferred from sinner to saint, when I went from lost to found, when I went from condemned to saved and sanctified, the moment that happened was in baptism. And I want to say this, uh, say two things here. For those of us who have been baptized into Christ, you appreciate how much of a gift that is. That you didn't have to earn back God's love and favor. That he said, listen, you call on my name. You do this pretty simple act, which, by the way, you're barely doing anything. You just stand there while somebody else dunks you, and I forgive your sins. You just be there and trust in me, confess my name, repenting of your sins. I got you. That's an incredible gift. That's why Paul, with every opportunity he had, talk about his salvation. is to say, thanks be to God who saved me from my sins, who made me something different. Do we appreciate it like that? Let me say something to those of you who maybe have never been baptized into Christ. I want to say it that way, baptized into Christ, calling on his name. You know, some baptisms, uh, you can't call on anybody's name because you don't have a conscious mind. You know, some people are baptized uh, or go through a baptismal ceremony as babies or young, young children, and they're not consciously calling on the name of the Lord. They're just doing something their parents wanted them to do. Uh, you know, sometimes people are baptized because they're like, yeah, I want to do this because it's an important religious ceremony. and I need to show my faith to other people. Notice there's nothing about showing your faith to other people. It's about calling on his name. Uh, sometimes you say, well, I, I got baptized into the church. Well, no, you didn't call in the name of the church. The church didn't die for your sins. You're baptized in the name of Jesus. And if you haven't done that, I want you to understand you're still in your sins. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not actually like the opposite of mean. I'm trying to be like Ananias right here. Just say you don't have to. You don't have to stay in your sins. If you've turned to Jesus, if you love him, if you believe in him, if you want to repent of your sins, you can have your sins washed away. And not because, oh, I'm good enough. This is the biggest, I hate this so much when I hear this, it worries me, it hurts my heart, honestly, when I hear it. People say, I want to be baptized, but I'm not ready yet. And I'll say, well, what do you mean? Because if what you mean is I'm not ready to actually follow Jesus and obey him and trust him, then you're right, you're not ready. You need to, you need to be ready to call on his name, to repent and give your life over to him. Doesn't mean you'd be perfect, but you got to give him, give yourself to him, absolutely. But if what somebody means when they say, I'm not ready, is I'm not good enough, stop it. Why do you wait? Because you ain't never going to be good enough, ever, ever. That's the whole point. He washes our sins away. That's why in Acts chapter 2, when the people said, what shall we do? We killed the Messiah. Peter didn't say, you're right. Y'all better offer penance for that. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Not because you paid back your sins. You couldn't pay them back anyways. God will forgive you, and he'll continue to forgive you. And he'll give you the gift of his Holy Spirit dwelling in you, giving you new life. That's the beautiful thing of what salvation is. That's why Paul, whenever he would write in his writings, he was always reminding Christians, people who were baptized into Christ, about their baptism. In Romans 6, he said, don't forget, you've been buried with Christ and raised up. You're brand new, baby. It's over. You're not beholden to all those bad things before. You've got a new. And in Galatians 3, he says, really, all of us, all of us, no matter our background, 
socioeconomic status, our ethnicity, our religious past, our sex, any of because you've clothed yourselves with Christ when you were baptized. You are all one in Jesus Christ. And in Colossians 2, he said all the bad stuff, all the sin and evil, it's been cut away. Just like circumcision in the Old Testament was a cutting away. God's cut away all the sin and evil in your life because you've been baptized into Christ. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. That this, this very simple and yet very profound and rich moment in our lives are such a symbol for us of what God's done. That he's washed us away. And not, not that the water itself washes anything off your body, but God's love, the fountain filled with blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins will cleanse all our guilty stains. That's the deal. And that's what made Paul be able to say, look, I was the chief of sin. Actually, he didn't say was, did he? He said, I am the chief of sinners. But not really. By rights, I am. By rights, I'm at the front of the parade. But now that whole parade has gotten transformed into a parade of people who have been saved by the blood of Jesus and changed forever. All right, we're going to sing a song in just a minute. We're going to stand up and sing a song. And we don't do this every time, but I want to do it. Uh, matter of fact, we rarely do this. Um, but it's good for us every once in a while, while we're together in our uh, congregation like this. To be reminded that there may be some of us who need to repent. Maybe some need to be baptized here. I don't know where everybody's life is and where you're at. But you don't have to pretend like you're a good person or worry that you could never be good enough. You can be saved. And for those of us who already have been saved, we need to be like Paul and take this moment as a moment of gratitude and of recommitment, rededication. The song that Caleb selected for us to sing is I give myself away. That's what salvation should call us to total and absolute dedication to the Lord and deep gratitude for the salvation that he's given us through Jesus Christ. But if you're here and you have not been saved, you haven't repented of your sins, you haven't been baptized into Christ. You're not where you ought to be, and you're still a sinner, lost. Know that you can receive salvation just like that violent persecutor Saul received salvation. And know that you desperately need salvation. And I don't care how good of a person you are. I'm not negating that you're a good person. But no matter how good of a person you are, if you haven't been saved by the blood of Jesus, then you're still a sinner, lost and condemned. And you need the Lord to save you. Whatever your position may be today, um, we're going to sing this song for a time of reflection. I'm actually standing right up here. If anybody wants prayers or if anybody wants to give their life to the Lord today, you can let that be known. And by the way, you don't have to walk up here to do it. We can talk after. If you're online and you need some help, uh, we can come to you after. Send us a message, whatever. Uh, but I want us to take this moment to reflect upon ourselves and uh, appreciate what God's done for us, for those who have been saved, and be exhorted, if you have not been saved, to no longer be a sinner but we'd be one of God's people. Let's all stand up and uh, sing the song Caleb's picked for us.